Hello and welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the world of uranium and we're joined by um, three stalwarts of the industry. We've got Brandon Munro of Bannerman Energy. We're joined by Wayne Hiley um, of Peninsula Energy and Siobhan Lancaster of 92 Energy. Hello everyone. Um, why don't we start, first of all, if you could just give us an introduction um, to your company's brand. We'll start with you, if we may. Thanks, Matt. Brandon Munro. I'm the CEO of Bannerman Energy. We're listed on the ASX and we're developing the Itango 8 uranium project in Namibia, just finishing up a definitive feasibility study. So I've been there for about 15 years and I've even, for my pleasure, had a stint of living in Namibia for six years. Hello, I'm Wayne Hiley. I'm the CEO of Peninsula Energy. Uh, Peninsula is also ASX listed. Uh, I, I reside in the United States. Um, I have a 30-year-plus career in uranium production, and uh, Peninsula Energy today is gearing up the Lance Project in Wyoming uh, for a resumption of production. Hi, um, my name is Siobhan Lancaster. I'm the CEO of 92 Energy. 92 Energy is a uranium exploration company uh, with assets in the Athabasca Basin. We recently discovered uh, the GMZ zone um, at our Gemini project, and we're currently awaiting assays um, on the recent winter 2022 drill program. Well, there we go. A real smorgasbord of of uh, the, the world of uranium. We've, we've we've got an explorer, we've got a developer, and we've got someone who's uh, getting into production. So, um, chaps, I, I want I want to kind of go through and help people with kind of the life cycle of of a uranium uh, company. But first of all, we can't avoid the macro tensions which are going on at the moment. People are a little bit excited about spurt listing on NYSE. Didn't quite work out from them. What do you make of it, Brandon? Not unexpected. It's disappointing and the market will take it that way. But um, in the meantime, Sput has established remarkable liquidity on the TSX. Remember, they've still got a US dollar unit that they can issue on the TSX. And what we've learned since they took over UPC last year is that most big money, most institutional money is quite happy to get their access to Sput through that US dollar unit on the TSX. So I saw a New York Stock Exchange listing as a bit of icing on the cake and probably far more important to retail investors, if you like the Reddit crowd, rather than the big money that actually moves the dial with Sput. And bear in mind, they've still got an OTC listing. So most uh, retail investors in the US who want to buy Sput can do that through the OTC. So for me, it will have a bit of an impact. People will be disappointed, but no big deal. And what about um, URNM coming uh, to Europe? Is that a uh, likelihood, do you think? Brandon, I'll just stick with you. Well, on that that's one. far more, yeah, it looks far more relevant, um, that is. So it, it's just a shame that that big news is overshadowed by uh, Sput and New York Stock Exchange. So as most people might know, Sprott Group has now uh, completed the takeover of URNM. That's an ETF. That's the fastest growing ETF in the uranium sector, focused on pure play uranium companies. And by listing it on London and having access to European or capital, um, that's going to have a far more direct effect because that will push more capital onto the register of companies like ours and, and everyone on this panel. Right, so we're looking at um, ASX companies um, here. When you're in the US, your assets in the US, uh, but you're, you're an Aussie company. Um, how important are exchanges that you uh, the exchange that you're listed on uh, for you know co uranium companies at the moment, or does it not really matter? 
I think the uranium companies move quite um, in sync, um, wh whether you're in, in Australia on the ASX or if you're in North America on the TSX or the NYSE or another exchange. I think for, um, for SPUT, um, you know, the move to the United States listing, while it, it seemed important, um, you know, can't and, and the failure on that listing because of technicalities can't be overshadowed by the by the fact that they've been hugely successful in raising money and acquiring uranium in the vehicle that they have now. Uh, they have a Canadian ATM uh, facility that will allow them to raise another $30 billion before it's exhausted. You know, they, they've bought over 37 million pounds and they, and they have, you know, and spent about half or, 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 or an equal amount of money on the way up. They've impacted the market tremendously, the spot market, and, and their ability to do that um, is not going away anytime soon just because they haven't achieved a U.S. listing. In fact, I think you're going to find that uh, at the end of the day, U.S. investors with an interest in this vehicle have full access to it via the, the Toronto um, listing. And Siobhan, um, nice to see you, Annie. You're, you're the new kid on the block. Uh, well, the, the company is. Uh, you're, 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 you've you've um, got a lot of experience in the space. But when you look, when you're sort of um, listening to these sorts of conversations, does it impact or affect your decision making, or is it just you've got to get on with the business of of uh, finding uranium? Oh, look, absolutely. We still go back to the fundamentals in the market when we're looking at. Um, you know, what we think our view of the market is. Of course, SPUT has come in and impacted that, but you've got to look at the broader stories around decarbonisation, energy security, um, you know, and what's occurring uh, around restocking and overfeeding in the markets at the moment. These all having a tremendous impact on the market. And as, as uh, Brandon rightly pointed out, um, you know, the listing on the New York Stock Exchange really is the icing on the cake. So it's not something that's necessary. All those funds are still coming into the market. And I think it's important to note that 15 million pounds of uranium have been bought this year. That's equivalent to the largest mine that we've got in production at the moment, what their annual production is. So, you know, I think uh, there's still that avenue to be able to go in and invest in SPUT and lots of funds to be able to come in. And so, Brandon, you've been at the WNA this week in London, um, and, and, and you, you referenced earlier saying, obviously, maybe retail might be disappointed by the fact that SPUT has been declined to be listed on the um, NYSE. What is industry concerned about? What are the conversations that have been had this week and what should we be looking at and interested in? Well, if I try and draw themes out of the three days of discussions that I've had, the biggest theme that industry is talking about at the moment is security of supply. And that's being affected in a very immediate sense. There's a lot of concern about impact of potential government sanctions, but also self-sanction and the potential for customers of electricity companies to really push back on some of their Russian dealings and Russian supplies. Uh, Russia supplies 40% of the world's enrichment. So if that supply becomes unavailable, that has a large number of quite profound cascading effects, even in the short term. Now, you bring that back out into the broader term, and what this uh, war in Ukraine has done is it has reminded everybody, both government policymakers, but also utilities, that energy security is one of the most important considerations 
that an economy can be based around. And that just got forgotten in the wake of Fukushima. And most of the focus, of course, is on gas because that's reliance on Russian gas has helped to precipitate um, this crisis. But it's clearly flowing into nuclear because nuclear power has, I believe, the greatest and most effective credentials when it comes to enabling a sovereign state to secure its energy supplies, both in terms of the reliability of the commercial price over a long period of time and its resistance to fluctuations from crisis and other events, but also the fact that um, it's highly feasible to stock five, even 10 years of your nuclear fuel needs inside your border where you can secure it, protect it and monitor it. You can't do that with any other energy commodity. I mean, so Wayne, if I if I think think about um, the sort of language that was used in conversations that we had with US producers and, and developers in the last couple of years, I mean, it's been quite combative, adversarial uh, in, in nature. Turns out, rightly so, given what the events of uh, in, in Ukraine recently. Um, what are the sorts of conversations that you're now having in the US? Because you're a US-based, US asset, albeit an ASX company. Um, has that helped you in, in any way? Are, are people uh, what, knocking on the door now? Yes. Um, well, it, the door is wide open, uh, Matt. And I, and I think that's really, uh, you know, now it's incumbent upon uh, folks like um, you know, Peninsula and, and the other US developers and wannabe producers to walk through that door. The door that's open is a long-term market uh, uh, contracting opportunities. Um, yeah, uh, we've we've reached out to um, uh, quite a few utilities, um, and and our outreach has has really led us to understand now uh, the action is off market. I mean, we're used to. Uh, responding to requests for proposals from the utilities when they come in on occasion, and and quite frankly, there were there were quite a quite a number of of utilities who in the past would say, "I'm not really that concerned about where I get my uranium from. I need to get it from the least expensive source." Period. You know, so so if you weren't that least expensive source, you had a little bit of work to do. Uh, today, um, you still have some work to do, but the sensitivity to diversity of supply, uh, the sensitivity to the opportunities that the U.S. government is promoting through, um, you know, supporting at-risk nucle nuclear reactors with some of the uh, bills which are before Congress. Um, you know, those, those bills suggest that um, to get the greatest funding and support, you buy uh, domestic production, domestically produced nuclear fuel. And the, the more components of, the, of domestic fuel that you have in your supply, the greater support you'll get. So if you buy uranium, that's a plus. If you buy U.S. conversion, that's a plus. And if you can get the enrichment component as well, you know, then you're going to maximize your, your opportunity with the U.S. government. So the utilities recognize that. And, and today, you know, a, a phone call will get you. Yes, we'd love to talk with you about your capabilities and, and what, what supply you could bring to us. And Shimon, what does it do for um, someone at your stage? You're, you're very early stage um, exploration, but does it change your thinking in terms of where the end point is? Because um, you know where you are, you're, you know you're drilling, you're raising money, you're drilling, you're raising money, and you know you're, you're building out that story. But does it make it easier to get capital? Do you have a better understanding of where that capital comes from as as a result? And you know, as, as I mentioned, the 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 end game may be slightly different now. 
Look, I, I think from our perspective, the end game is still uh, just looking at the basic fundamentals of the market and the gap between the supply and demand, um, and that still exists. Um, the security of supply obviously makes Canadian and American assets, uh, you know, uh, something that's far more uh, amenable to US utilities. Um, so from that perspective, it's certainly changed, but it's also put a really positive spin on uranium and nuclear as, as, a, as a source of fuel and really shifted that conversation back to sensible conversations around how you produce that energy in the market. Okay. And, and, look, and I think um, we, we should probably sort of try and work out what the challenge or challenges are that each of you um, faces kind of going forward. But I, I can't help but note the slight change in narrative between uh, it used to be, oh, it's it's Athabasca, North America versus Africa. And only we're lucky enough to have representatives um, from all three. So um, for you, Brandon, has this changed the narrative for you? Is it is it an easier conversation as a result of uh, events in, in Russia in terms of getting noticed? I know you've got the OTC listing, but what are you seeing? Look, most definitely, particularly in conversations with utilities, um, African production was one of the themes coming up over the last three days. And if I give you an example, the CEO of Arano, uh, the large French major, they uh, he used his opportunity on the stage to emphasise that it's a vital part of Arano's strategy that they have a three-legged stool, which is production from their Kazakh joint venture, production from their joint ventures in the Athabasca. And he really emphasised the importance of Africa. And he, he spent about five minutes in a panel discussion talking the room through why African production was an absolutely vital third leg to that stool. And really what it means is that they can offer production to anybody. And Namibia, and in their case, Niger, is very important from that perspective when we start to see the potential for bifurcation in this market because Namibian production uh, is sold and very um, well received in US, in Europe, in Asia, but it can also continue to be sold to the biggest player in the game going forward, which is China, and any other countries that might find themselves um, confused as to which side of that bifurcation they fall. So Namibia can sell to any producer of commercial nuclear power in the world. And that ability to swing, if we uh, continue to see ge uh, geopolitical tensions increase, positions African production in a very special category. And that's becoming better recognised and accepted in the industry. And so, okay, so hopefully in terms of the narrative, it stops becoming a sort of squabble internally of people say we're better than that guy over there and realise that we need all of the above, right? Um, and, and hopefully the market recognises that, investors uh, recognise that. But um, for you, Wayne, in, in the US in particular, which um, has obviously significant needs, not a lot of, of production, um, the US is going to, and the utilities, um, and maybe with the US uh, reserve are going to need to find um, friends um, in, in terms of that supply coming down the line. But w what does it do for you now, though, in terms of access to capital, in terms of um, demand for expediting things? You have obviously been solving some some um, te technical uh, components to your story. Um, how do you, how do you move things forward quicker? Can you move things forward quicker as a result? Does does that involve M and A? Where do you go with this? 
No, um, well, we're certainly in one of the best positions as far as a, a rapid restart goes. Uh, we have uh, for a long time together talked about the technical facets of the Lance project. Uh, but, you know, in the last several years, uh, we've we've now feel that we've put that to bed. We, we worked on um, technical de-risking. We've done field demonstrations. We've talked about the results along the way and the challenges along the way. But um, at at the uh, end of last year and into the beginning of this year, we concluded our, our technical demonstrations of, of the upgrade and technologies that we're putting into Lance. And now we're transitioned into completing a feasibility study and, and looking at, um, which we expect to have out within um, you know, a couple of months, probably by the middle of this year. And, and then, and then you know, we're really looking at where does the funding come from? Uh, the, the markets today with the spot market up as it is um, really are, are supporting um, the, the uranium developer community, the uranium exploration community, and, and all of these need, uh, need the support. The explorationists who, who've been starving for funds for the last decade, you know, today can, can go out and raise some money to find um, big new deposits, which the world really, truly needs. But today, yeah, uh, we, can find the, we can find the money in the markets if we were, if we were out looking. Uh, we haven't been active in that because we've, we've been very deliberate in our approach to, uh, to, to things. You know, we did the technical de-risking and the regulatory de-risking. We have that in the rearview mirror now. We're finalizing the, the economic analysis, and then, and then we'll make that go decision. And uh, we're very confident in today's market that, that the funding to go ahead is, is readily available. Sean, I, I always think um, with um, company CEOs, one of the most frustrating things that they have to face is they don't get to take the project all the way down the line because someone comes and takes them out. M and A. I think M and A is going to be a big part of um, this this marketplace. And if you're if you're a buyer of, of of the idea that we need all of the above, you know, I think there will be some consolidation of some of the better assets. So, um, what are the, what are the challenges that you think you face um, in today's market going forward? Uh, look, I mean. I think uh, as an explorer, you're just the challenge is really around exploration success. So, uh, provided that you've got that success coming through, uh, challenges become fewer, and then you're just dealing with broader market issues. Um, obviously, the spot price is something that on the day to day flows, everyone's paying a great deal of attention to. But it's it's interesting. Twelve years ago, we we almost ignored the spot price, and we just looked purely at long-term contracting prices. And I think you'll see the market start to turn back around in that direction a bit more going forward. And perhaps Wayne has a bit more experience with that um, himself at the moment, but certainly 12 years ago, that was the case. And let me jump in. Uh, we have this, um, this discussion now open about differentiation between the spot market and the term market. And, and I think that's something that we really have to you know, recognize. Um, almost always in, in the history of the uranium market, the term market leads the spot market in pricing. The term market is there at, you know, with pricing that incentivizes long-term commitments to the, you know, to the supplier. Uh, that's what term is. It's a long-term commitment. A producer is going to commit a component of their supply and they're going to get a uh, a premium for that commitment today in the in the markets we see the spot market leading the term market the spot market 
transactions are almost wholly characterized by um, uh, the financial community activities. And the term market today is where the producers and the consumers reside. So, so when we look at what's well and truly going to um, support a project, we have to first look at the term price. Uh, and today the term price is about $5 lower than the, than the spot price. It's been trending that way, and that that's an anomaly. We need the we need the markets to to levelize to get to back to normal and see the term term markets ahead of of the spot market rather than the converse. Absolutely, and and there's an interesting again for this is meant to be a session for people you know need to um, uranium investing. Um, so just in terms of the utilities' behaviour at the moment, you know they've always been a sort of a slight enigma in terms of their decision making and. Um, it's it's opaque as the word we've always traditionally used with them. Is how how does their decision making change, Brandon? Um, you know things. The world has changed dramatically in the last year f- for them. We've seen um, spot market rise, and that's what retail looked to. Um, the guys in the industry, um, obviously, as Wayne says, are more focused on um, term prices and, and that and those sort of term contracts coming out. Um, how has their world changed? Will utilities start to move this year? We've been calling it every year for the last three years, but nothing's happened. Is anything going to happen this year? Well, the behaviour has changed to a degree, but the mindset has probably changed uh, a little bit more abruptly. And if we go back a few years, particularly for people new to this sector, over the last several years, there's been an oversupply of uranium where the utilities could continue to top up their requirements in the spot market. And if not in the spot market, they would use traders to facilitate short-term buying through what's called the carry trade or the mid-term market. Now, where I've seen a very abrupt change in mindset is the understanding that because of the volatility in the spot market caused by the financial community, the utilities realise that those days of topping up are gone and they now need to put in place long-term contracts over five, 10 years. And uh, in the last few days, for example, I heard the same phrase mentioned in slightly different ways about four or five times, and that was the financial community has ensured that the spot market is no longer a source of supply for utilities. Now, the thing is, as Wayne points out, the term market has traditionally traded at about a 20% premium to the spot market for reasons of security of supply and certainty. Um, It's lagging at the moment, but that's not surprising. And if you go back over, say, the last 30 years, uh, whenever there's been an abrupt increase in the spot price, term has lagged. And that's simply because writing a term contract for most utilities will take them anything between two months if they're uh, regularly writing contracts and going to a customer that they've just been dealing with, anything up to six months and beyond if that utility hasn't done a term contract in a while, they've got to get their documentation together. They probably have to go to an, a, a wide panel of potential suppliers. So um, the other thing when you talk about the behaviour of utilities is my observation is they're still trying to figure this out right now. They're tr- still trying to understand, are these sort of prices the new normal? Are they an aberration? Are they setting a base for even greater price growth? 
they're the questions going through the minds of utilities. And until they start to feel more confident about those, I think they will hold back for a few more months on engaging in term contracts. And that's probably where we will see uh, a continued lag uh, into potentially the end of this year. I think Brandon, Brandon's really got that. Um, it, we're in a period of price discovery in the, in the term market right now. Uh, it, it's actually not responsible for a, a producer to sign a term contract when the spot market is offering more money. Um, you know, why would you, why would you commit long-term your production uh, at a price that's 5% less than, or, or, or $5 less than what you can get in the spot market. So uh, when I said that, you know, we need to see that normalize, I didn't say that it wouldn't. I just, I, I really meant to imply that, you know, we're in a period now where of price discovery in the term market uh, and the spot market with all of the financial activities and the trades between, um, um, you know, the financial community and the traders is, is well ahead of the term market right now. But it, the term market will play catch up. We'll get that price discovery and you'll see more and more contracts once the pricing makes sense. But I, I noticed that um, I think the IAEA are suggesting that um, uh, utilities are sitting on about 16 months of inventory at the moment. I think typically we've, we've talked in the past of, you know, needing two to three years worth. Um, have they been sort of asleep at the wheel um, over the over the past couple of years? I mean, why are they letting uh, inventory levels run down like this, Wayne? I mean, you, I don't, you may be having more conversations with utilities and others. I'm sorry, who, who's responsible for running the inventory? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm saying the, the, there's, there was um, something that came out of WNA this week the, the, from the I, I, IAEA uh, suggesting that um, there's only sort of utilities running on average about 16 months worth of inventory at the moment um, versus a recommendation of like two years or two to three okay. years. So are they asleep at the wheel? Well, n no, um, they've, they've, they've fully taken advantage or taken advantage of the past markets where uh, they could top up, um, you know, from the spot market, you know, with, with ease. Um, the challenge of getting a term contract in the past was that the spot market was cheaper. Today, with the, the, the term market cheaper, they're certainly, you know, interested in, in more longer term commitments. But, um, you know, the, the, the utilities, just like this set of CEOs, is responsible to a set of shareholders and the fuel buyers were responsible to those shareholders to acquire uranium at the lowest price that they could. Uh, they're less responsible to to the shareholders to uh, pay up for security of supply, and and you know that's that's changing now. That's the dynamics that that is changing is that security of supply and longer term um, availability of supply is now coming to focus with the with the financial sequestering so much of what was mobile inventory, right. It, yeah, it's essentially. And so, um, remind me, what, what's the in, in terms of the total operational um, costs? Um, what what does the you know the uranium component um, comprise of as a percentage, Brandon? Is it in terms of the ongoing operating costs? Uranium is not a big part of this, is it? Um, even in a mature uranium market like the US, where reactors have the capital cost has been paid for a long time ago and they're looking to extend reactors to 80 years typically the uranium component is between 8 and 10 percent of the total cost of electricity so you go to a less mature market where a large proportion of that electricity is 
capital costs associated with uh, development of the nuclear power plant, and it's even less. You compare that to gas or coal, where it's the vast majority of the cost of power is um, that marginal cost of the fuel, and that helps to explain why nuclear power has been recognised as being such a commercially reliable and resilient source of electricity around the world. Okay, so we, so right, the, we've covered a lot of the macro sort of stuff. I want to kind of get down into this nitty gritty again. For people need this. I want to sort of at least headline a lot of the the things that you guys think about. Siobhan, I'm going to come to you. You're 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 at the beginning of, of, of the process here, Explorer um, in Canada, um, and you know some of the more topical conversations at the moment are along the lines of. Um, you go woke, you go broke. We've got ESG. We've got all, all sorts of, um, influencing factors outside of what you want to do on a day to day basis, which is go and make a discovery, uh, and, and, and grow, and grow your business. How are things like that affecting you as an, as an explorer, those, those sort of external pressures? Oh, well, I think, um, with ESG, you've always had that social license to operate. So really, I don't think too much has changed over the years. Um, you've always got to pay attention to your environment. You've always got to pay attention to, um, you know, all the people in the area in which you're operating. Um, so not much has changed there. So we're always paying attention to that. That's always been part of the way I've operated, um, you know, and 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 it won't change. Um, of course, we're cognizant to it and we talk about it more with investors these days. But um, you know, from my perspective, it's really important to get that stakeholder engagement from the very beginning right at the expiration outset. But how, how does that, all that reframing conversation um, affect you? I mean, does it cost more money? Is, is, is it more expensive to have this reframing of the conversation of things that you've always traditionally done? I mean, uh, look, sure, it adds small amounts of cost, um, but, you know, you're getting inflationary pressures from every way and direction at this point in time. So, you know, it's 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 nothing unexpected, and then and then of course you're you're operating in an environment with inflationary pressures. That just basically means that your term contracts need to go up to you you know make a, a mine. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think too much has really changed in that sense. Okay, but but, but sticking with you as an explorer, obviously, but you know, Wayne can talk to us um, about the inflationary pressures, you know, maybe driving the uh, change of uh, required in terms of the price that these guys need to get. But for you, in terms of um, you, the co the inflation affecting um, the cost of materials, in terms of drill rigs, in terms of personnel, and and so forth, is it making it harder? To do your job um, than it than it was previously, you know, is is are things you know potentially terminal for explorers in this current environment, or does it all kind of level out eventually? I mean, it's not something that we've struggled with. Um, we've got um, very very good suppliers that we work with, and and that's through having an established team who've worked in the basin for many years. So that's not something that we've really come across as terminal, but sure, it might be an issue for other explorers out there um, who perhaps are new to the market or don't have those suppliers, um, you know, at their fingertips. Um, but it's not something that we've encountered at this point in time. Right. So basically, the the, the cost of finding pounds on the ground is is the same as same as it ever was. I mean, i.e. business has not really been greatly affected, but you're sort of cognizant that inflationary pressures, you know, will come to bear at some point further down the line. Is, is that how you're looking yeah, at it? Yeah, and I mean, I, 
I, th I think really the point is markets are open at the moment. So the ability to raise money at this point in time is is far easier than would have been, say, for example, five years ago, um, you know, when the markets were essentially shut to uranium, uranium explorers. And, and that makes a big difference. Um, uh, and that's probably more important for explorers to be successful than inflationary pressures, for example. But you do you do need the kind of liquidity that retail brings. But there's a kind of disconnect between the thinking of, as you say, that there there's money available to companies at the moment institutionally, hmm. but the retail are a little bit more guarded. They're kind of protecting their their themselves by I don't know hoarding cash, behaving differently um, because, and we've seen that in the marketplaces. There's been this withdrawal. I mean. I, I mean, and Brandon, we, we, you know, even even uranium um, companies have not been immune to the effects of the markets of the last three, four weeks. So, do you think that retail will, you know, soon soon work out that actually it's going to be okay, or can, do you see a sort of a long sustained period where perhaps they're going to be um, a little bit more cautious where, with where they put their money? Well, as you point out, you know, uranium does march to a different drumbeat and it does have some very heavily defensive characteristics um, and i'll come to those in a moment but uh, it can't uh, fight the winds of a market downturn if that's what we ultimately saw um, now as to the defensive characteristics that's something that was discussed over the last couple of days as well and um, it's interesting with the COVID disruption to energy supplies uh, we saw such incredible disruption that oil went negative, you know, coal didn't even move. And yet the uh, consumption of uranium through nuclear power, even in the most affected markets, dropped by maybe 5 or 10%, such as France, where there's a very heavy reliance on nuclear power. Now, that's for a very good reason, because when you've got all of this investment in a nuclear power plant, that's the last thing that you turn off for the reasons we've been talking about. And so, therefore, a uranium investment has a very heavily defensive characteristic because those reactors are already built. No matter what happens in the world, if we did face our worst fears in terms of global recessions, those reactors will just continue to produce power. And the uranium story is still predominantly a supply-driven story. Uh, demand growth, which looks really exciting now, that is just a bonus. The fact is that there's been such a lot of underinvestment in this sector that just with the baseline of all of the nuclear power plants around the world and their provision of 10% of the world's electricity, there isn't enough uranium and that's what drives the macro. So I think um, over time, you'd see bigger money come into the sector for its defensive characteristics, which would then lead retail. And, and what about you? Um, obviously, the US is a, a, a big, big retail market. There, it's it's advantageous to be in the US. But with the, yeah, are, are US investors looking at you as an Aussie company, Wayne, or do they kind of see you as one of their own? And you know, and how how can they? How, well, how can you help yourself in, in in that market? Can you take advantage of that? Uh, well, we certainly are, are regarded as a US producer. Um, you know, with Australian ownership, and 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 it is advantageous to have the assets uh, and the production um, assets in the United States, a very stable jurisdiction. Um, so, so we are able to, 
you know, to, to play in that sandbox very well. Um, you know, our, our, uh, our production is flagged us domestic production. Uh, it's, you know, it's not flagged as Australian production because we're an Australian company. So, you know, uh, thank you uh, to, um, you know, the, all of our shareholders in Australia who support this, uh, you know, but I, I think it gives us a key advantage actually now in the market is that, you know, in, in respect to the universe of, of um, Australian listed companies, we have the opportunity to, um, you know, fully function in the U.S. markets. And if I, if I look at, obviously, three years ago, um, trying to invest in different exchanges was horrible. It was not easy. Um, it's got easier. People are doing it from the you know from their armchairs on their phones mm -hmm. it's it's made life a, um, a lot easier but for the companies you know we, we've seen aussie companies listing get otc listings go to uh frankfurt and e even on aim the, the cost of that is used to be quite prohibitive but do you do you see more of that happening as the the world sort of you know this kind of um the utility on your phone being able to cross is the cost There's worth it? There's definitely been an adoption of the OTC markets. Um, you know, it's not a formal listing, and, and it's wrong to say I'm listed on the OTC. The OTC is a trading platform, and you know, we we moved to um, open up trading on the OTC for Peninsula shares, and that's been hugely uh, received um, with great volumes. Um, you know, as a as a junior uranium company. We have very enviable volumes on the OTC trading platform. So more and more companies are are finding it's it's um, very cost effective. Uh, it, it doesn't have the the regulatory uh, compliance uh, burdens that that a full listing has, and it gives uh, North American investors, in my case, the opportunity to. Uh, to participate in this Australian-owned North American um, producing asset, so so uh, you know the OTC markets has been a really good evolution, and and it's really come on strong. You see more and more companies doing this um, across different sectors, but it's uh, you you can also see almost full participation amongst the uh, the uranium sector. And well, as a percentage of your liquidity, what, what does it equate to? Well, we uh, we trade about a quarter, some okay. some twenty you percent know, to a quarter of our shares. You know, wow. we might trade we might trade a million shares a day on on the OTC and, and four to six million shares a day on on the ASX. And Brandon, you've got the same, haven't you? Same sort of setup. Yeah, we're we're doing a bit over a million shares a day on the OTC, uh, which represents over the last twelve months fifteen percent of our total volume. Okay, Siobhan, any plans? Yeah, well, look, it's actually something that we're looking into at the moment. Um, certainly, it's um, something far more um, palatable to us than a TSX listing at this stage due to the compliance around a TSX listing. Um, so anyone who's ever run a dual listed company between the ASX and the TSX would know that the compliance costs as well as uh, effort that goes into that compliance are really quite substantial for companies. Um, so the OTC listing actually enables companies to have this sort of quasi listing overseas without those huge compliance issues um, around them. So yeah, it's certainly something we're, we're investigating at the moment. 
Okay, well, um, guys, I think it's a nice introduction, but I'll, I'll let you each kind of uh, sort of wrap up where you think be beginners, newbies uh, in, in the world of uh, uranium investing should be focused. I mean, Brandon, what, what, are, what are the things that you would point people to in terms of needing to understand about investing in this space? Well, the first thing is uranium is a bit different to investing in other commodities. Uh, the knowledge and experience of a management team is extremely important uh, because of the very particular risks that you have in uranium. It's a small space and there's only a limited number of quality companies that you've got uh, three of them well assembled here on this panel. And uh, the um, importance of the operating environment cannot be underestimated in uranium. There are so many operational hurdles and that's where being in an established jurisdiction such as Namibia, Wyoming or Canada becomes vitally important to an investment thesis. Wayne, what, what do you think? What do you yeah, think? Uh, look, you know, uranium may just be entering the start of a, of a very uh, long super cycle. You've got to look back. If you know, if you're new to to uranium investing, you have to understand that uranium cycles are generally not uh, quick ones. Um, you know, I've enjoyed one, and this might be the start of the second. Uh, super cycle uh, um, in, in the uranium space in my 30-year career, 30-plus years. So I'm really excited about where the uranium markets are today. Uh, this this is just the beginning, and, you know, and various people speaking in various heads. Some say it's the second inning, some say it's the first inning, you know, but we're a long ways from, from the end point of, of this cycle, and uranium uh, priced at $60 a pound um, is merely where it was 11 years ago uh, or, or 12 years ago. It's, and, and it's been much higher. So, um, you know, get ready for the ride of your life. This is, you know, we're going to go up and down a little bit, but, but I see more up than down in the coming years. Siobhan? Yeah, so I completely agree with what everyone said. Um, I think it's going to be a very long cycle um, and, and it's probably going to be one of the better cycles that we've had. I'm super bullish on the fundamentals, which is why we initially got into this market in the first place. And, you know, there's so many good things going for it. Um, and I think we just need to come back to those fundamentals around the supply story and the demand side of the story with decarbonisation and security of supply. So, we're in a good place right now. We are indeed. And look, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. And I'd say to anyone uh, listening, watching this uh, at home, also look for companies with strong fundamentals like these three companies, 92 Energy with Sean Lancaster, um, with Peninsula Energy, um, with Wayne Hiley, and of course, um, Bannerman Energy with Brandon Monroe. You can't go far wrong with these guys. Uh, appreciate your time today, guys. Um, and we'll catch up with you soon. It's been a Thanks, pleasure. Sam. Thanks.